um, I'm more than happy to share that with you as well. Um, so the first thing that you see there is like a key term that that's what we want us to, I want us to um, talk about. Ecclesiology is actually the name of the systematic theology term where I was kind of bummed because he was doing a book giveaway and he was doing a, a giveaway and he's like, okay, who has gone through a systematic theology uh, at any level in your church or, or like officially? And then there was like four of us in there, right? Representing us. Um, and nobody raised their hand. I mean, obviously I could have raised my hand. I think, I, did you did you raise your hand too? Yeah. Um, and I think he won a book for, from that. Was it from that or from something else, right? But I realized, hey, you know, we never talked about systematic theology and anything else. But that's not where I'm going to take this conversation. But in systematic theology, which is putting what the Bible teaches about everything, um, each doctrine put together systematically so that we can better understand it. Um, the study of the church is called the ecclesiology, and it's right there for you. It just comes from the two Greek words, ecclesia, which means church. And logi, just like biology, psychology, and everything else is, is the study for it. So what it essentially it is, it's um, the theological nature, worship, its members, including pra practical matters of the church, uh, the polity, how do we interact with each other, the offices, and the pastoral care. What does that actually look like? So all of that is included in the ecclesiology. So that's essentially what we're going to be looking at for the next four meetings we'll, we'll have um, because if we are going to be building a church or if the Lord is going to build this church, um, it's going to be essential for us to, to be what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 to 11. Um, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building, According to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which was laid, which is Jesus Christ. Obviously, our foundation is Jesus Christ, but we're being built together and we are God's building. So there's, there's this language of architecture um, that, that, that Paul talks about. And you know anything about architecture and how houses are built, you must follow the blueprint with precision, right? Because if you deviate a little bit, if you, if you just, at the, at the outset, if you just go a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right, then as you build on it, even though it might look good, eventually it will crumble and it will eventually it will come down. So it's important that we don't deviate from the biblical blueprint that scripture lays out for us um, as we are prayerfully and mindfully um, trying to be built and, and build the church together. So with that being said, um, one of the other metaphors that the Bible uses for the church, what is it? The body, yes. You guys are following along. This is so awesome. You look at First Corinthians chapter twelve. Um, actually, let's turn let's turn to there together. First Corinthians chapter twelve. 
in verses 12 through 31. And as you're getting there, here's another pop quiz. What's another metaphor that the, um, that the Bible refers to the church as? Hmm. Stumped you there. What is it? A bride? Okay. Okay. That's the second metaphor. What else? A temple? Okay. Anybody else? There you go, family. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's the one I was thinking about the first time, but like all those other ones are also true. Um, so let's, let's read together. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 31. This is what Paul writes. For even as a body is one and yet as, has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one in body, so also is Christ. For also by one spirit we are baptized into this one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, whether we are made to drink of one spirit. For also the body is not one member, but many. And then he kind of just goes on, actually. I'm, um, you, you can read that. And you see that the body of Christ being the church is, is here. Um, so clearly the church is a body. And clearly everybody... Um, is made up of certain fe- features, and you see that in your overview. Everybody has a skeleton, right? Everybody has a internal systems. Um, every body has muscles, and then over top of the muscles, then you have you have the, the flesh or the actual what we would call like the the meat of the the body. So, so the church, if we're if we're going to be a body, using that analogy. Um, that's where you see on your overview that the framework or the structure or the structural framework of the church is going to be like the skeleton and the attitudes that the church would have would be like the internal systems. Um, the muscles would be the different functions, what the church does, because um, that's what you use to, to move around, right? Your muscles. Um, and then what the different programs and activities that the church involves itself in is going to be the flesh, what everybody sees, right? Um, so that's kind of where the metaphor comes from. This is not an original uh, metaphor for me. Um, I didn't come up with this. I copied it from um, a book called The Master's Plan for the Church by John MacArthur. Um, so... What we do know, however, is if any of those four pieces of the body are missing, like if any of those are lacking, then the church's anatomy will be compromised, right? If the skeleton is not there, there's nothing to hold up the muscles or nothing to house the internal systems, and definitely no, you can't put anything on it, right, if the skeleton is not there. Or if if the internal systems are not working rightly, then there's no communication between the skeleton um, and those of you, right? But between the skeleton and, 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 and the muscles, right? And if the muscles are not there, um, then there's nothing, there's no movement happening. So the body would be ultimately compromised. Um, so it's, it's important that we consider all these four things together 
Um, and that's why we're going through this for the next several weeks or the next four times that we meet together. The first one being the skeletal structure. And when we talk about the skeletal structure of the world, of the, the church, that's like, what is the framework, the basic fundamental framework that the church should have? Uh, the first one is a high view of God. A church must have a high view of God. By the way, let me stop here before I go anywhere. Any questions so far? No, either I'm a really good teacher or like I'm I'm like missing the mark so badly that I'm like, you guys don't know what I'm talking about. Um, I I think it's the first one. Um, yeah. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. I like that vote of confidence. Thank you. Um, so the the first thing to consider in the skeletal stru structure of the church is the high view of God. Because the emphasis of the church, really the emphasis of our lives individually, is to know and glorify God, right? So the church exists to know God and to glorify God. I exist and you exist. Every single person exists to know and glorify God. That's why God made mankind, to know him and to glorify him. So as the church must exist to um, to, to do so, we must pursue the knowledge, the presence, the honor of God as he's revealed to us in the Bible. We'll come to that a little later. So the, the primary goal of the church is not to make people feel good. I'm not saying that people don't matter. Don't hear me say that. Because um, if you didn't matter, we wouldn't have fed you. <laughs> but it's not the primary goal. The primary goal of the church is not to make people feel good about themselves. It's to make people know who God is. Not just know who he is, but it's also to make people understand what it means to glorify him. And then encourage them to glorify him. That's the main and the primary goal of the church. I mean, look at Proverbs 9 and 10. <clears throat> What's the beginning of wisdom? The first thing, if we're going to be wise, the fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh, is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And we kind of went through it this morning when we, when we looked at Isaiah's poem and Isaiah 1 and how Hebrew poetry works and how like, you can kind of count the lines and then you, you see how the parallels. You see how, like, in, in your Bibles, if it's in, in a line, you see the fear of Yahweh, the beginning of wisdom, and then the knowledge. of So the fear and the knowledge are kind of like the, the bars, if you will, that, that, that would be parallel to each other, right? So to fear God is to know God, and to know God is to fear God. And that's the first thing, the most important thing, is what it means. It's not like the first thing in the line of order of his first and then his second is third. No, it's like the most important thing for anybody to know that 
claims to have any kind of understanding and wisdom is to know God, is to fear God. To fear God is to know Him, and to know God is to fear Him. It, those two are like synonymous. So because Scripture teaches us that, the primary goal of the church is to know and glorify God. And having that right relationship with God, all of us in here know, I think, if you have the right relationship with God, it would allow everything else to fall in its proper place. Every other area of life, if, if our vertical connection is, is clear, every other area of life will find its proper place. So the church exists for that reason. So the church must take the knowledge and the glory of God seriously. Like we really, 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 really have to do that. We have to take this seriously. And I keep picking on Busu because like I keep coming back to that. I was like, what do you want to see in this church? And then we were kind of just having a, a brainstorming session. It was just like, you know, like we really want to, we don't want to be like, it's like we're not playing. I'm like, I can't wait till I get a bumper sticker one of these days. The Remnant Bible Church, we're not playing. Like, like for real. Um, but but what, he's, what he's communicating, what, what, what we all feel and sense and what we want to do, I mean, it doesn't matter if it's just us or anybody else that's a true believer. They take God's knowledge and his glory seriously and that's what the church exists to do i mean this this glory um and, and the knowledge of god isaiah sees this in isaiah 6 1 through 7 there's a whole entire book written on this um by rc Sproul, the holiness of god um uh, i'm gonna do a few giveaways it's not gonna be one of them um unless i buy another copy and then i'll give you a new one I don't think you want you want you want me writing in the books and the margins and stuff like that. Um, you know, I don't think you want that book. But um, Isaiah six one through seven, we see that Isaiah. This is the beatific image that Isaiah sees in the, in the year King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord, and I want to like pause here and really talk talk to you about that word Lord for a second. How does that appear in your Bibles? Is it all capital L O R D, or is 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 it the first L? The first L. Only the first L. Who knows the difference between when it's when it's a capital L versus capital L O R D, all all caps? How how that's translated? One of them is Yahweh. Which one is Yahweh? Yep. Yeah, when you, whenever you see L-O-R-D, capital, all caps, that's actually Yahweh. And part of the reason, by the way, if you've ever noticed, when I, I use the Legacy Standard Bible, which is like the New American Standard Bible, except for they've actually adopted that. Every time they say L-O-R-D, capital, they've changed the name to Yahweh so that we're addressing God by the name that he revealed himself. Um so I don't have to change it. I can just read it. 
uh, I don't have to read it. But anyways, what about the other uh, the other L O R D? Any guesses? Anything? Tell. Listen, anybody? Yeah, there you go. I mean, you just you just gotta guess, man. Uh, we're we're gonna be gracious. We're not we're not grading on the curve. Uh, everybody gets an A. Yeah, that's Adonai. Adonai means Lord. Adonai means sovereign one. My sovereign one. Is what, like, what Isaiah is emphasizing here is I saw the sovereign king of the universe. Right? And we might not have an idea of what that means, honestly, because we are, most of us, born in a democracy. Whether it was a good democracy or not, that's up for debate, but I'm not here to discuss politics. Um, but we were born in a democracy and the entire world runs in that way. So we don't understand what like a sovereign ruler is like. Like maybe in our history books. I mean, just less than 200 years ago, if the sovereign ruler of England decided that my soldiers need to go and live whatever your address is. They come in. You have, like, they can take your food, your clothes, your bed. You're in your house, but you're not in your house. Like, that's not your house anymore. It's like, by the sovereign rule of King James, I'm coming in and I'm, I'm staying here. And they eat all your food. They take all your clothes. They take your bed. So you're sleeping on the floor in your own bed because the sovereign ruler sits, all right? That's why the American Revolution and everything happened. Because people are just tired of that. Um, that's a little history lesson. But <laughs> to that extent is what it means. And even more. So this is what, what Isaiah sees. So when we think about knowing God and his glory, I, I just wanted to kind of harp on that word Lord to the point where like the thresholds, the foundations of the thresholds trembled, shook at his voice. Do we actually shake and tremble at God's voice? If he's that sovereign and God speaks and we know him that way, like, like, should, like, jar us, right, when he speaks. And then look at what, look at what he says. I am a man of unclean lips once he realizes who, and my eyes have seen the king, Yahweh of hosts. This time he calls him Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D. And then he realizes it. So what we see and what we should recognize is his sovereignty. His supreme power. His autonomy, his freedom from any external control. These are Merriam-Webster dictionary definitions of the word sovereignty, by the way. But we should also shake and tremble at his voice. We should recognize our sinfulness in front of him. We should acknowledge his presence among us. And we should also receive his gracious and merciful atonement. Because this is what happens. Once he realizes and confesses his sin, the angel walks. The angel, he doesn't walk to him. He, fl he flies over to him. And then he touches his lips with the coal. And he hears your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. That's the knowledge 
and the glory of God. Here's a quote from that book that I referred to you, The Master's Plan for the Church. I cannot have put this any better. He says, when a church sets its complete focus on God and does everything it can to honor Him, it has a base for uncompromising integrity. When the focus is on God and, and does everything to honor Him, there's no room for any compromise. We can actually walk in integrity. So that's the first thing that we see. And we don't need to be a man-centered church. We have enough of those already. I mean, they call them like sport teams and stuff like that, right? <laughs> you go out there and you cheer for your favorite player and, and you get in fights and stuff like that. I mean, maybe you don't. I do. So um, or I'm trying. Help me out here. Um, but there's enough of those. But we don't want to be man-centered. And then you see our resolve right there at the end of your, your handouts. As the remnants, we want to reach out to people and the love of Christ, but God is going to be the primary focus in our life and in our worship. That's what we are committing to. And the way we do this is by holding fast to the second non-negotiable truth that makes up the skeleton of the church which is the absolute authority of Scripture. The second talk that um, the, the other church plant had was actually on that. Can, can we actually trust Scripture? And he touched on Scripture's clarity. He, he touched on his sufficiency and authority. That was, that was kind of what he talked about. So for those of you that were there um, with me, this might be kind of redundant, but I try to change it up by even giving you some real-life statistics from last year. I gave you statistics this morning, if you were here this morning, but that was from like 20 years ago. This one is from like literally last year. Um, because what we see in, in our nation is people are rejecting the divine authorship of the Bible and therefore divine authority of the Bible increasingly. And then they're, they can actually just take whatever resonates with them from, from the Bible, from the scriptures, and reject whatever they want to. This is what it's leading to, right? And sometimes we all are guilty of that. Like we want to take what we want, and whatever cuts deep, whatever comes close to me, it just burns me. I'm like, ah, no, not really. There was a meme a while ago, actually, said the Bible is not a bunch, uh, a bag of trail mix. You can't just pick what you want and leave what you want. Right? Like we got trail mix back there, and I, I, I'm guilty of that. I took the raisins out, and I just ate all the, the peanuts and the M&Ms. Right? We, but we can't do that with, with, with um, the Bible. Here's the statistics, as promised. 38% of U.S. adults agree that the Bible is the highest authority for what they believe. Only 38%. So, I mean, you do the math, that's 62%. And then if we're really counting, it's like, okay, let's, 
what's the rounding? 60, 38 would be 40, right? So 4 out of 10 evangelical Christians agree to the fact that the Bible has the ultimate authority in their life for what they believe and how they live. That's not the majority, right? Like, it's, it's actually the, the minority. And we don't know the details of those 38% even. So it's, it's really alarming. And this was from the State of Theology survey done in 2022. That's question 32 of that. But the Bible, however, is a unified message from the one true God. And it is in, to be embraced in all its fullness as God's perfect revelation to mankind. Proverbs 35, it's, I think it's, it's in your handout. I, I wish I had just printed out the verses for you guys as well for easy access. But here's what it says. Here's, Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Every word of God is true. It's tested. You, and then we see 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture, <clears throat> referring back to the Old Testaments here, is God-breathed or inspired by God. That's kind of to say, by the way, the inspired is not like the inspiration you get when, when you hear a really good sermon and you're like, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to go out and like, that's not the kind of inspiration. This is actually the God breathed. I like that translation better because when we talk, we actually are using our breaths to talk, right? So if I don't take any breaths in as I'm speaking, like I end up like running out of breath. So that's, that's, that's really the communication that, that Paul is trying to, or the scripture is trying to paint for us. God is like breathing out as he's speaking his word into us. Into the writers, at least, of scripture. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped, for every good work. And we see the sufficiency. We see where it, can, where it comes from. We see what it's used for. We can't deny the authority. Paul refers to it in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where he says, in verse 37, where he says, the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandments. The things that I'm writing to you and you, you have, are the Lord's commandments. And what does the Lord's commandments have? They have authority. And Peter talks about how they even have more authority than their own experiences. As he was referring to what he saw him and, and John and James you know, Jesus takes them up the mountain, and then they go up on the mountain, and then they see the heavens open. They see these two guys come and stand on each side of him, Moses and Elijah, and then Jesus is, is literally being transfigured in front of them. 
and they hear the voice from heaven. The father is speaking and they're like in awe. They're like, man, let's just live here. Let's just camp out here. Forget everybody else that's down, down the hill. Let, let's just camp out here. Like to the point they were so mesmerized by that vision. That experience. But listen to what Peter says. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. Even though we saw that amazing vision, or amazing experience, we have as more sure the prophetic word. It's even more sure than what we saw. Because we could have been hallucinating. That's now I'm kind of just writing that in. Right? <laughs> but even better testimony than what we actually saw and experienced is the prophetic word, which is the scripture, to you, to, to which you do well to pay attention. That, that word to pay attention is to submit to. As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes by one own interpretation. These aren't just like random dudes that just wrote and they just compiled them together. And they're like, oh, this could be good for us, for society, for civilization. No, this is not how it came about. We don't get to pick and choose which one we want to submit to, which, one, which ones we don't. For no prophecy was ever made by the will of man, but men being moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And that's where the key word is. It's from God. And if it comes from, from, if it comes from God and it's, it, it, he's the Lord, the sovereign one, it holds God's authority. So since God reveals himself primarily through his writings, as we, uh, um, through scripture, his written word, the church and its members must hold fast to the scriptures as the absolute and sole authority. So as the remnant, you see that, in, in, that's another resolve. For us, it's, it's obligated. We are obligated to submit entirely in what we believe and in what we do and how we live to the authority of God's word in the pages of Scripture. And we strive to do so through the third thing the church is to have in its skeleton or in its structure, which is sound doctrine. Let me pause here. Any questions or comments so far? Nothing. I mean, not even, what are you guys talking about again? Like, because I just came in. Like, that's what I would have said. Like, you guys, man, I'm telling you, I, like you. If you were a teacher, you would not want me in the classroom. Like, it, was, it took so much. Grace to not interrupt uh, Welton's service the other day because I had questions, I had comments. I'm like, like I like I had jokes because I'm kind of a, a class clown, right? Like it was just like, oh man, that would be so awesome. And I'm like, nope, just bite your tongue. But anyways, um, I, I save all of that for my professor on Tuesday afternoons. Um, 
So the third structural or the, 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 the uh, framework for the church is going to be sound doctrine. Ouch. Did somebody say doctrine? To some people, it's a trigger word, especially in our time where it's more about style than substance. It's more about feelings than truth. It's all more about emotions and experiences than actual teaching. Right? And there's a place for emotions. There's a place for style. Absolutely. But you hear doctrine, you're like, oh. But it's really, really simple, by the way, doctrine. One, it's a biblical term, as I would prove to you here in a second. Two, it just means that Merriam-Webster's dictionary says, what is doctrine? Something that is taught. Right? Like Everybody in here knows how to walk. Somebody taught you how to walk. Guess what? You have mastered the doctrine of walking. Right? Like if you if you know how to drive, you have mastered the doctrine of driving because someone taught you how to. And I'm being a little facetious, but but when we hear doctrine, it shouldn't be an alarming word. It shouldn't be like, oh no. And I get why that overcorrection happens. Right? Because people who overemphasize truth and doctrine become hypocritical, they become cold and loveless. They become completely dependent on their head knowledge and they, they, they just have a, a wrong kind of image of Christ that people detest and we want to avoid that. Right? So that's not right. I'm, I'm not agreeing with that. I'm not saying that. But the Bible does teach us principles or a body of principles and knowledge in a systematic way. And, and that's what the Bible causes as doctrine. And the structure of the church that actually views God highly, that it has a high view of God. And if we, if, if, if the structure of a church is one that submits to the authority of His Word, it naturally must include the emphasis on teaching His Word. Right? If doctrine is something that is taught, what are we going to teach? If we want to know who God is and we want to honor Him, and we want to submit to the authority of His Word. What should we learn? What should we teach? His Word. That's, 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 all, the, that's all I'm saying. That's all that it means when a church has sound doctrine. Because if God's Word is not taught, then it can't be believed. If it's not believed then it can't be authoritative because you, if you don't believe in something, then you don't submit to it. Like you don't think it has any authority. That's, that's just logical. So if God's word is not taught, you do, then it can't be believed. If it's not believed, it can't be submitted to. And in that way, if God's word is not, is not taught, then we, we can't know God. And we can't honor him the way that he wants to be honored. That would just be a guessing thing.
So to that end, by the grace of God, we have an entire book, really, on what the church is supposed to act like, how the church is to operate, because the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth, Paul calls it, is, is 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. Paul tells Timothy. And pointing out these things to the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. As you're pointing these different doctrines, being nourished on the words of faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. So as you're teaching God's people God's word, one, you're going to be a good servant of Jesus Christ. Two, you're going to be nourished. Nourished on what? On the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine. I mean, the whole book starts off by saying this, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. As I exhorted you when you go going to Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may command certain ones not to teach a different doctrine. So there were people that were teaching a different doctrine, different teaching. Paul says, no, stay in Ephesus so that you can teach the right doctrine to the church at Ephesus. Again, chapter 4, verse 13, until I come. What did he tell him to give attention to? Give attention to the public reading of Scripture. To exhortation. And to teaching. That word teaching is translated as doctrine. Pay attention to these things. What? Public reading of Scripture. That's why we open our Bibles and we read it together and we, we do those things. Two, exhortation, encouraging others to come alongside and, and hey, come on, guys, let's, let's do this together. That's what we're doing. How do you do that? By teaching them, by doctrine. So sound doctrine is definitely a, an emphasis. Um, it's not, it is that, man. That's crazy. And now I got to scan that and give. <laughs> and then later on, verse 16 in chapter 4, pay close, pay close attention. He tells Timothy, this is really a personal letter. Um, and he tells them to pay close attention to your life, to yourself, and to your doctrine, to your teaching. I mean, it's, it's that important. Like, why? Preserve in these things, uh, persevere in these things. Why? For as you do so, as you persevere and paying close attention to your, to your life, and to your teaching, to your doctrine, 
you will save both yourself and those who will hear you. You see the importance of doctrine? Like if you want to save your life, watch how you live. But not just how you live, what you're learning and what you're teaching. So the church, therefore, must, must have a structure that emphasizes substance over style. So the remnant of the church would be committed to sound doctrine as taught in Scripture, which will be a solid foundation on which we build our lives, leading us to the next fundamental structure or that skeleton of the church, which is personal holiness. By the way, I hope you're seeing how each one kind of builds on the next one as we're building together. High view of God. If you want to have a high view of God, submit to His Word. If you want to submit to His Word, learn and teach sound doctrine. Once you do that, Personal holiness comes as a fruit, even, of that, right? It's God's will. It's, it's, it's clear as day that it's God's will for holiness is God's will for, for His church, right? Holiness is God's will for His church and His people. I mean, His church are His people, by the way. Ecclesia, the called out ones, is what that means. And if we are breaking down and parsing Greek, ek, kaleo, out, call, called out for Christ, right? So it's the people that makes the church, not the building. In his first and most famous sermon, according to Matthew, I don't know if this was his first sermon, I can't dogmatically say that. What does Jesus tell his, his disciples? Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You are to be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. Unless your holiness surpasses those of the Pharisees. Right? This is what Jesus continually teaches his disciples. We see in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14 through 16. As obedient children, not being conformed to the former lusts, which were yours and your ignorance. Can somebody help them and point them to the right. We need, we need signage. No, it's not, it's not here. I mean, like she could have came. I don't think she would have caught on. But yeah. Um. <laughs> um. Yeah, I don't know. I think there's another thing that's going on tonight. I didn't know that. Just guess found out. First Peter chapter 1, verse 14 through 16. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your conduct. Personal holiness. 
That's the call of Scripture to all who are obedient children of God, who submit to the authority of Scripture, who learn and teach sound doctrine so that they can know who God is and honor Him. We saw this this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That's the standard by which we are to live by. We must maintain the firm standards of personal holiness and be careful what we are exposing ourselves to. So what Paul tells the Philippians after he says, hey, I've not gotten there yet, but I forget whatever's behind me and I'm stretching forward to the goal, the upward call of, of Christ. And at the end he says, however, let us keep walking and step with the same standard to which we have attained. That's the call for personal holiness, if I ever heard one. So each member of the church must be concerned about their personal holiness. Because we can't live a half-committed life, a half-committed Christian life, and expect God to accomplish His work in us and through us to the degree that we desire. Right? And I, I want to put that clause, emphasis on that last clause. That God will com- accomplish His, His work despite us. I mean, Scripture is littered with stories like that. Read the book of Judges. Especially the book of Judges. Uh, I was just in it this past weekend. My professor said, um, it's one of the most depressing books in the Bible. I'm like, really? I didn't think so. And then we started walking through it together. I'm like, yo, he's right. (laughs) Like, this is super depressing. Like, nobody was doing right. Even the judges wasn't doing right. I mean, we some of them even made it into the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, like Samson. Dude was like, I, he wouldn't have met my standards, honestly. I dude was supposed to not touch dead people or dead things because he was a Nazarite. What does he do? He kills a lion, goes, comes back, he sees a dead carcass, and then goes and gets honey out of it. Like, you're not even supposed to touch it. Throws a big party and most likely had drinks in that big party, bragging about how he touched a dead carcass. He's a Nazarite, he misses it. All right. And he's supposed to ha- have this, keep his long hair, gets it shaved off. Sure, the pilot tricked him, whatever, but who, no, it's his fault. I mean, he misses all of those things, and despite all of that, God accomplishes his purposes in him, despite all of that. But if we are to, to, to be God's servants to the degree that we desire to be, we can't be half committed. We have to be fully committed, and as a church, that's what we'll commit to. We will not lower our standards of holiness below what God requires in His Word. And to ensure this, we as a church will rely on this last structural component of the church's skeleton, which is the spiritual authority. 
and as we discuss about this last spiritual authority, I'm going to throw a, I'm, I'm going to give you a, a disclaimer up front. It is going to sound a little bit self-serving, but it's not by design, I promise. It really isn't. <laughs> because ultimately the head of the church is Christ. That's what scripture says, the buck stops with him. Look at Ephesians 1 verse 22, as the father puts all things in subjection under the son's feet, and he gives the son as head over all things to the church. Christ is the head. None of us are, are the head. It's not going to be Manny's church. It's not going to be Dole's church. It's not going to be God's church. It's not going to be anybody's church. Nobody is the head but Christ. That's what the Bible says. Again, Ephesians 4, 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head. Who is the head? That is Christ. It's as clear as day. It's right there. I can't make a U-turn. I can't go and step over it and try to make myself known. So it, yet... He mediates his rule in the church through godly leaders. Right? And this is, by the way, for those of you that know anything about uh, Catholicism and, and, and who the Pope is and what, what their confession is in regards to, he almost replaces Christ as the head of the church because he's the vicar now. He has as much authority over the church as Christ. That's confessionally there. I'm not going to go there, but I just wanted to throw that out there. That's not what I'm saying. He's just mediating his rule in the church through godly leaders who Ephesians 4 verses 11 and 12 tells us. He himself give to the church as some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, some as and teachers. Not to rule over people, but for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. And he also commands the church to acknowledge and understand this truth within his structure. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 13 and 14. It tells us, regard those who work among you or labor among you. Regard them very highly in love because of their work. Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Again, and as much as they speak the word of God to you. Again, the authority is even mediated through the word of God. I have no authority as a pastor of this church inherently. Nothing. No leader of a church has any special authority that, that they have except for the gift that is given to them uh, except for through the word of God. Later on in Hebrews 13, we're commanded, obey your leaders and submit to them. You're getting my point, right? I, when I say this is going to sound a little self-serving, that, that's not my goal. <laughs> right? 
Obey your leaders and, and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And if you're really looking at that, by the way, it puts much more weight on the leaders than those who are submitting, right? Because if, let's say you obey and you submit and they mislead you and they, they, we go somewhere and we're being held accountable, you're only going to be held accountable for you. But the leaders, those who are to watch over your souls, are not only given account for their own souls, but for all the souls that they kept watch over. So it's not a glamorous thing. It's not something man has taken it and, and taken it sideways. That's another conversation for another day. So that they will do this with joy and not with groaning. You don't want to make people that are leading you, you know, kind of bitter. Like, oh, these people, I have to go preach to them. I keep preaching to them. You know, that's the point that the writer of Hebrews is trying to make. It's like, if, if, if you're submitting to them, then they can do their job with gladness and joy. That's the point. It's, it's just a harmonious relationship between between a godly leader and a godly flock, a godly pastor and a godly flock. That's all that, that this is talking about, by the way. Yet what we do see is it is God's revelation that God does have people as leaders that he gives, that Jesus gives the church as gifts. Leaders. So as a church, we must understand that there are variations in giftedness, different gifts, even among leaders. Some, some leaders are really good at speaking. Some leaders are really good caring for one another and bringing people to... I mean, imagine... Think of... Think of um, um, John and Peter, for instance, or Andrew, right? Like, think of the apostles is what I'm saying. Anytime the apostles were mentioned, who comes first? Whose name is usually rings out first? When's the last time Bartholomew, you thought about Bartholomew? And he was an apostle too. <laughs> you know what I mean? But anytime I think of an apostle, it's, it's Paul. And then Peter. And then John. That's what comes to mind first. But that's only a fourth of the apostles. And the reason being is, it's not because th th they were like lesser apostles and then these were higher apostles. It's just a, a variation of giftedness. So as a church, we agree with that because that's what we see in Scripture. There are variation in giftedness of, of the spiritual leaders God, God gives to the church. But as a whole, in its totality, there is equality in the spiritual authority given to each leader, to each one. There's an equality in spiritual authority provided 
that that spiritual authority is according to scriptural mandate. Again, that, that, that is the only thing. Provided that the authority is being exercised according to scripture. That's it. If it's not according to scripture, if it's according to my feelings, y'all can kick me out right now. Or whenever I do that. You can call me on it. I'm here for that. So as a church, we will affirm this truth to be a fundamental structure of our church's autonomy. Questions, comments, conundrums, snarks, jokes. I'll open the floor up for you guys. Yes. I think a typical question with biblical theology would be how can we both disagreements in interpretation or where do we get the courage to talk about the same thing, stuff like that. Okay. I'm not asking. For a friend. You're asking for a friend. <laughs> You're, you're asking for a friend. Okay, let me address that so I don't forget and I'll come to you. Um, okay. Sure, go ahead. So, like, same thing attached to that. Would you also give advice or wisdom on how to handle that? How to handle what? Like you said, when it comes to disagreements and interpretations yes. or certain matters, um, you also want to make sure you handle that properly. Yeah. You don't want to just be like blow shop and you can mess with things. Yeah. So wisdom for how to handle that in your opinion. Okay. Um so the first part of the question, let me answer that. How do you how do you handle differences in interpretation? It's by following hermeneutical rules, right? There's fundamental hermeneutical rules and you might if you're saying Herman who, that's not a Again, that's that's not a joke. No, that's that I've heard it so many times. I, I might as well have adopted it for myself. Um, there's actually a book. I do recommend that booklet if you ever want to know how to read and study your Bible. It's called Herman Who on Wretched.org. Um, I'm not being paid by them or anything. So, but um, but yeah, it's 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 the hermeneutical rules, which means it's 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 just a principle of interpretation. Right, so if we're going to follow a normal, what is called a normal, historical, literal, grammatical, if, uh, by by normal, let me let, let me go one by one. By normal, I mean when we read the words of Scripture, we're going to take the words as we would took as we would take any word normally, unless it was actually explicitly said otherwise. So when we see a verb in scripture, it's going to be a verb for for us. Right? We're not going to take a verb and then make it like an adjective or whatever. Right? Um, so it's that historical, grammatical, literal interpretation, which means it takes account to the historical context of the of the passage. It takes account of the literal, but when I say literal, I don't mean like exactly what it means, but like the different genre of literature, whether it's a 
uh, poetry, whether it's a narrative, whether it's a didactic, which is teaching, whatever that, that is, right? Whether it's actually like apocalyptic. Um, so whatever the language, the literary style is, we're going to take that into consideration. We're going to take the historical context into consideration. And we're going to take the grammatical context as well. Like what does the text above it talk about? What does the text below it talk about? What does the whole chapter talk about? What does the whole um, canon talk about? This very specific thing. So in considering all of those, that's how we draw out the right interpretation. Now, here's the catch. No human being is infallible. That means people would get it right and would get it wrong. But as long as we're committed to that, we'll get as close to the authorial intent, that is the interpretation, that's the meaning, what the author intended to communicate. If we are faithful to that, if we take it normally, if we take the historical context, if we take the, the literal context, and if we take the grammatical context seriously and really analyze it, we will get what the author, God is not mean to just hide all of his intentions to the point where we can't reach it. And he has given us tools by which to do that. So we get to that problem. We solve that problem of in, in, in interpretation by using that hermeneutical. Um, I, I forgot you're asking for a friend. I keep looking. Uh, hermeneutical <laughs> rules, right? Um, and what was the second? And how do you resolve conflict was the second question? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, disagreements in interpretation is what I'm guessing is your question. How do you reconcile? Again, we just go back and say, work through these processes and say, okay, what exactly, like, do we agree on that hermeneutical principle? Yes. If we agree on that, then we have, we have an agreement there. But if there's a disagreement on the hermeneutical principles and we're saying, you know what, I want to interpret everything that I read spiritually or allegorically. Then if we're going to be consistent, by the way, there's, there's going to be inconsistencies. So we'll find if, we're, if we come to an agreement uh, and that hermeneutical principle, then we'll find where the inconsistency lies. And it becomes relatively easy. To, to, to realize where that inconsistency comes. And again, those things may not be always easy, and there are going to be things that are like left for the Lord to resolve in ourselves as well. And then that's when you get into like everything that's in Scripture is important, but they have levels of different, differing importance. Right? Like the person of Jesus Christ and who He is, like, it's at a most, the resurrection, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 15. I told you as a first importance, this is what I emphasized, which says, I told you everything else, that's also important, but there's a first importance, so there's levels of importance in Scripture. Everything is important, but there are some certain uh, truths where we can actually agree to disagree, if you will. Um, that are called secondary issues, tertiary issues. But um, 
and then th those are going to be like like conversations to be had and then the lord continues to work our theology and and reveal the truth to us and then he'll resolve it over time or in eternity <laughs> one or the other um one of the great examples is like two people that i um that that i my that fill my library john MacArthur and rc sproul have a differing view in child baptism one believes in ch ch uh, ch child baptism the other one believes in believers baptism well believers baptism and child baptism is what uh, rc sproul because rc sproul would also agree on believers baptism but he would just attach the children in there they had an entire debate at a conference um, where both of them provided scriptural mandates, scriptural emphasis, and I haven't heard that a couple of times. Um, like, I know where I lie, but if you were just to listen to it in a vacuum, you're like, yeah, he's right. Oh, no, he's right. He's right. It's, it's easy. But they kept fellowship where um, John MacArthur is the one who spoke at R.C. Sproul when he went to the Lord. Now, needless to say, R.C. Sproul has his theology corrected. Now he's with the Lord, if you if you know what I mean, right? Because <laughs> he sees it clearly. But <laughs> if it tells you what camp I lay on, um, but but the, 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 those things you just got, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He said he was willing to wait even, and he waited, and he just went and found out. So, but like like there there are things that that are like that, but. There are other things where, like, no, we we can't, and then let's go back to our hermeneutical principles, um, and the wisdom to to, to answer to that. Um, ask the Lord, as James says, right? You ask for wisdom from the Lord, um, and, and again, it, that's really subjective, right? That's what makes wisdom tricky. Um, what we don't want to do is we don't want to be like um what what what's what's that uh terminology um a circular uh firing squad right you guys know what a firing squad is right and but if if everybody in the firing squad is is in circles and everybody picks up their guns what happens everybody shoots each other everybody's dead we don't want to be like that and we don't want to be extremely sensitive and we want to be we we want to be gracious. We want to tell the truth and love. That 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 is the wisdom that's there. Um, and understand. Hey, um, I recommend by the way a podcast um, called um, what is it? I have to look at it. The 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 MacArthur expository something. I I can forward that to you. But they just had a conversation about that. A really good presentation, which called it a. Um, I'm, I'm in biology and medical field today. They called it a theological tri uh, triage. Those of you who are in, in nursing field, you guys know what that is, right? Like the, how you level it. Like, do I handle like a heart attack? Do I handle somebody bleeding out? Do I handle somebody coughing? Which one? Which one do you handle first? Right? Somebody's feeling it. So um, it's it's understanding what level it falls in. And then dealing with it that way, um, that would be the wisdom. Can much more experienced and smarter men have 
have spoken about it, I'll refer you to that if that helps at all. But good questions. Does that answer your question as well? Does that tell your friend and then let me know if that answer if, if that answers your question? Okay, like generally when you have um, something you've been thinking about, you're not sure if you're in line with um, the position of the church, would you say general wisdom is maybe for the pastor? Yes. Uh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Um, and and that uh, absolutely. Um, yeah. Talk to talk to more mature believers about what you think. Right? This, this is why we we gather together, like bounce ideas off of each other, and and, and being inquisitive, um, and saying, "Hey, I'm thinking about this. Am I seeing it the right way? Am I not seeing it the right way?" Um, doesn't necessarily have to be the pastor, but yeah. That's good. So you 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 asked and answered your own question. Anything else? Okay. Sure. Absolutely. Yes. Um. So, I see in scripture a a plurality of elders. That's where the church begins. Elders plural. Paul talks to them and the Ephesians that way. Um, Paul talks to Titus that way to go and appoint elders, plural, for the church. Um, now each each elder has a different function. Each pastor, which by the way, the word elder, pastor, overseer, those are interchangeable. Um, one talks about the office, the other one talks about the function, and the other one talks about uh, something else that I can think of off the top of my head. <clears throat> but um, yeah, absolutely. That that's what's like the the scriptural mandate for spiritual leadership is a plurality of elders, um, provided that there is room for that, um, that there are people that are qualified to be elders, biblically qualified to be elders. Um, so that that's that's what I see in scripture, and that's what I. That's that's a hill I'm willing to die on as well. As well. Um, and that's why we're praying that the Lord would continue to add to us, if that makes sense. That's a good question. Did you have a question? Okay. You did have a question earlier, but you didn't ask me. You said you were going to read. Hmm? I know, I know, I know. No one else? Okay. If not, let's pray and finish. (laughs) Father, thank you for this time together over your word. Thank you for teaching us what your design 
is for your church, what your plan is. Thank you for calling us out from our sin and our darkness into the marvelous light and into your kingdom of your Son. Lord, it is only by grace, through Christ, by faith, and for your glory you have done so. So we want to honor you for that. We want to give you thanks, and we want to express our gratitude for that as we do, Father. We also want to express our desire to be led by you, to know you, to glorify you, to submit to your will as it's revealed in your word, to learn from you so that our, our lives can be transformed, so that we may live a holy life. We may pursue a life of sanctification so that we have a harmonious relationship with one another as you lead us into the image of your Son, Christ Jesus. So, Father, we ask you to accomplish this work in us according to the riches of your grace by being merciful to us so that your name can be honored. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, can be glorified. In whose name we pray. Amen.